Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, we have a real treat for you runners out there. On the podcast today, I have the incomparable Steven Seiler, PhD, otherwise known as the godfather of polarized training. If you've been paying attention to the endurance world over the last several years, you've surely come across this notion of polarized training, or it's sometimes referred to as 80-20 training. Polarized training is a concept popularized by Steven where training should be designed such that 80% of it is in the low intensity domain, something ultra runners are quite good at, and 20% of it is in the high intensity domain. And we see this training distribution play out in elite athletes and recreational athletes alike. Steve has been on countless podcasts and has given, I can't tell you how many presentations on this topic, as well as the topic of what intervals are quote unquote best for endurance athletes. So much so that I wanted to use this time with Steve and zoom out a little bit for this conversation. Instead of getting into the minutia of if 45 second intervals are better than three minute intervals or if one minute intervals are better than eight minute intervals, Steve and I discussed the practical big picture application of it all. And it was an honor to have this conversation with Steve as I have respected him for many years and use countless amounts of his research in my book as well as in my coaching practice. And he has influenced many, many others in the exact same way. So here it is. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Steven Seiler. Brings us up a really good launch point to, to start out with. I mean, athletes are obsessed with what is going to give me the best bang for the buck. Like what is the singular workout structure or singular architecture that I can do to make the most out of my time. And we see this at the elite level because they're looking to maximize the last few percent of performance. But we also see this at the, like the recreational level as well, because they're limited by time predominantly. Uh, they've got work, they've got kids, other roles that they play in life and things like that. And I feel like a lot of the research that you've self-professed to be bored with um, that's come out over the last several years has started to hone in on some, I'm not going to say the answer, but some like some plausible combinations of things that could be better than others when we look at the entire scope of endurance training. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have, I've given a lecture uh, on, I've called it a, as a tribute to Maslow, a kind of a hierarchy of endurance training needs. And it kind of flips on the head, the, this popularity contest that you're referring to. And that is the, the single best predictor of performance is just training time. Uh, up through a pretty big number of kilometers or hours per week. So there is no getting around that. There is no shortcut to, you know, if you, if you want to be a really good marathoner or ultra runner or rower or whatever, you got to do the work. Uh, and five hours a week is better than three and eight hours a week is better than five, but not as much better. It's not as much of an additional improvement as the f jump from three to five. And so you do have this law of diminishing returns, no doubt about it. And so most people find themselves on a place on that curve where more is still better. 
whereas way out at the elite level, they're, they're at a place on that curve where that's a very touch and go proposition of whether more will actually be better or will push them over the cliff, you know? So, but for most of us, uh, more is better if we can, you know, do it manageably without getting bonked on the head by our partner or whoever, you know, (laughs) so (laughs) that's, that is still, but, and then, so, you know, what I tend to say is more is better, but then, then in that volume of, you know, getting stuff done, doing the work, then you need to find some appropriate distribution. uh, And then we start talking about intensity zones. Right. Um, And so the, all the evidence that I am able to find and see is that most of that work should be at a, at a, you know, a fairly moderate intensity, meaning, you know, below first lactate turn point, which is, you know, that's, that's uh, the home field advantage for the ultra runners. They do a lot of that already, but even the, the elite, middle, you know, the elite distance runners, the 5k specialists, the rowers who race for six minutes, it's still true for them as well, that most of their training is at sub threshold intensity. So we have found that this is a very robust recipe that is not very specific to competition distance or, or duration, I guess is the, you know, duration is what matters. So from at least four minutes, five minutes up to five hours pro cyclist, six hours, this basically the same distribution is what we see. The only thing that changes is just some, what are the key workouts? Like, you know, how do you use the high, the hard sessions? How do you distribute those? You, You know, if you're marathon type doing a prep, those hard sessions may look more like threshold work. If you're a, uh, 3000 meter runner, you know, then they're going to be more like, uh, VO two max intervals. So that kind of thing, but, but hard, easy, 80, 20, those kinds of concepts fun- fundamentally seem to apply across that entire duration spectrum. So now then the question would be for your audience. Okay. But when you talk six hours, you're just getting to the, you're getting to the starting line now, you know, that, because that's where, where, you know, that's upper end of, of my world in terms of, you know, high performance endurance sport, six hour stages in cycling. Right. Right. Or, you know, you know, I guess you can go out to Ironman triathlon triathletes and they're doing eight hours, eight and a half in that range. And that's, so that's the spectrum that's within that range that's relevant to world championships, Olympics and all this stuff. And then you guys begin. And then we begin. So we're going to, we're going to get into some of the, what that intensity distribution looks like and what that intensity should actually look like. But I think before that, just to set the table for the audience a little bit, I think we need to walk through a little bit how we can define intensity across that the entire spectrum of endurance. We'll leave it into the endurance realm because once we get above the, or once we get more intense than the, than the typical endurance realm, it starts to get even more complicated than that. But right. every single year that I've been coaching and this, I'm going into my 20 some odd year, 21st or 22nd year of coaching. It seems like we've added an intensity range. 
when I started, when I first started out, there were three intensity ranges and then there were five and then there were seven and then there were nine and then there were 13 and on and on and on. And I can't keep, and I can't keep track of them anymore. And whenever I come back to high performance physiologists, I always ask them, I'm like, is this practical? Is having this many divisions of an aerobic intensity really all that different? It's just silly. I mean, <laughs> silly is the, the kindest word I can find for it. Uh, I got to be honest with you, you know, and so you cannot, I, I would challenge any physiologist with a, with a, any letters behind their name to tell me how in the hell they're, they're dividing that cake up into eight or 10 or 12 slices or 13 in terms of distinguishable reproducible physiological changes that distinguish zone seven from eight from 10 from 12 forget about it i mean you know if i was italian that's what i'd be saying forget about (laughs) it uh the best i'm able to do physiologically and if you go to the research literature um well, and, and that the thing is, I know that the people you're talking about with these 12, they're not the ones that are publishing because that's just not getting published. You don't ever see in the research literature 12 training zones. Right. You see it in practice, right? right. You see it in, co- in, so, in with coaching and with athletes for sure. Right. So that so let's be clear to and, and with with credit to my research colleagues, they're not they're not doing that stuff. Uh, generally, in the research literature, you will very often see only three uh aerobic zones meaning between the lowest intensity you would use in training and maximum oxygen consumption in that range which covers from let's say from 50 percent of vo2 max to 100 percent of vo2 max generally that cake gets cut into three zones uh and the reason that's true is because the the distinguishable physiological changes that we're able to identify consistently is this so-called first lactate turn point and second lactate turn point. And those also can be identified as pretty much the same points using ventilation measurements, so-called ventilatory threshold measurements. Um, So then you've got LT1, LT2, and VO2 max as your three typical lab anchors, right? Now there's some there's some wiggle room on defining LT1 and LT2, but you know it's not it's not as big an issue as Republicans versus Democrats to put it that way. It's 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 much narrower. Okay. And how can so some athletes will be familiar with just a standard incremental uh, incremental exercise test and having those tests done on them, but for an athlete out in the field that's trying to trying to figure out where those physiological anchors will be for them, the first lactate turn point, the second lactate turn point, practically, how can they internalize that? Yeah, the, the first one I would say is a pretty decent um, surrogate or proxy is just the talk test. Uh, you know, if you, and I'll even make it, I'll, I'll give it a double a double test. One is you should be able to talk while at that intent, say sentences. I'm not saying talk for two hours. I'm saying, but you should be able to speak three or four sentences comfortably to a person running alongside you 
and not feel like you're out of breath because basically the talk test is a proxy for a ventilatory test. We're trying to say is ventilation under reasonable control are they hyperventilating? If they're starting to hyperventilate, then they'll have trouble talking. And ventilation is one of those things that changes when you pass that first threshold. So it's kind of just a, a, a poor man's ventilation, ventilation test to do this talk test. Now, the other uh, proxy that I use a lot is, and I tell people that if you're well ventilated, meaning, you know, you're, you're getting airflow and you're drinking, then once your heart, once you've warmed up and you you found you you've been exercising for say fifteen to twenty minutes, your core temperature is stabilized, you're in your rhythm, then your heart rate should pretty well stay flat at whatever that heart rate is for the next hour, next at least forty five minutes. Meaning that gives you a you should have a fairly flat heart rate without what we call decoupling, where that heart rate is just drifting up, up, up. If that's happening, if your heart rate is drifting after 15, 20 minutes, then chances are you're above LT1, okay? I had, I did a workout just two days ago, 48 hours ago. I did a purposefully did an 80-minute threshold session, 82 minutes. Um, and my heart rate, you know, I, I, was, I know my LT1, I know LT, my 60-minute power, and I was on the upper end towards 60-minute power, and heart rate just slowly drifted upward the entire time, you know, and I, that's what I expected and it's super reproducible. But when I do low intensity sessions, heart rate stays flat as long as I'm not fatigued from strength training the day before or something. So this is the good surrogate measure is just looking at that heart rate response. Talk test plus heart rate, flat heart rate, put them together they give you a pretty good idea, am I in that low intensity zone? If heart rate's drifting up and you're starting to uh, feel like it's not so good to talk, then that's a then that's threshold. And then when you're above the second turn point, well, you know that generally. You know. <laughs> not sustainable, super hard. Right. You know, we're talking minutes instead of an hour. We're, we're you know, you're counting the clock. And, and time just really slows down once you get above LT2. That's, that's one of the easiest things is you're looking at the clock. If you're doing a session and you're at that intensity, you, your head is really struggling to, to count those seconds because they feel like they're getting stretched. So to, to kind of basically summarize this, we've got these three ranges. The first one can be categorized as easy in where ventilation and heart rate is not going to change based on duration, as long as you're hydrated and you know, you're. Yeah. Well, let me just slow you down there. It eventually it will, but the rate of change, it's quasi steady state, but I want us to get into that quasiness later because that quasi aspect is super important if you're an ultra runner. Yep. So that's the first, that's the first range. Second zone or range is where things start to get uncomfortable heart rate's going to gradually increase and it's not or it's not an intensity that you could sustain for much more than you mentioned you did an 80 minute session there but 90 minutes is kind of typically what we would consider the upper limit of what you could sustain in that range but it's un, it's getting uncomfortable the third the third zone the red zone in your color scheme 
is something that's extremely uncomfortable. It's only it's only sustainable for minutes, a few minutes, several minutes at the at, at the very most. And you know you're in that range. Ventilation rate is really high and it continues to increase second after second, minute after minute. And as you mentioned, you are counting counting the seconds down for which you can stop and cease, and cease yeah, exercise at yeah. that intensity. You're counting minutes at least. I mean, it, de- it depends again where you are. If you're just above that second turn point versus if you're way above, but if you're just above, generally one of the things you'll see is in any of the, if you get above that second turn point, then eventually your heart rate will get up to max. Yep. Perfect. Okay. okay. It, it'll just keep climbing. So, but that may be, you, you could see this in a fifth in a 5k. Yep. Right. You know, you would you would see pretty much heart rate max at the end of a five k, whereas at the end of a ten k, it'll probably heart rate max. You'll be at maybe ninety five, ninety eight percent of heart rate max. You won't be quite to a a hundred percent even by the end of a of a ten k. Yep. You know, so it's subtle, but yeah, I would say it's either you're counting seconds or you're counting minutes, but you're definitely counting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also worth pointing out that all three of these ranges, the easy range, which is the green range, the middle range, which is the yellow range, and the red range, which is the harder range or the severe domain, are all aerobic. These are all, with, these are all yeah. within an endurance discipline. They are all aerobic intensities. The, the, the energy that you're metabolizing, you're doing so through aerobic sources. Absolutely. You know, there, this idea of the anaerobic, cause some people would call that second turn point, right. the so-called anaerobic threshold. Uh, I'm going to call that bullshit. That, that is just wrong. It's a, it's a very poor name yeah. because it implies something that's physiologically wrong. Uh, it's like the aerobic metabolism stops and something else starts and that's just wrong. hundred percent agree with that. And we could go on for another yeah. two or three so, podcasts on yeah, that. It's we'll, we'll all about, in this entire range up to hundred percent, it's all about oxidation, oxygen. That doesn't mean there's not lactate production. That doesn't mean there's not glycolysis, you know, but it's about driving the motor with oxidation, with oxygen. Okay. So now we've got this three zone intensity framework and what athletes are very curious about is how can we manipulate intensity and time at intensity to maximize the adaptive response within however we can kind of contrive intervals. You already mentioned earlier that volume is going to be king essentially up to a certain point, but that point is really high. Even amongst Mm -hmm. elite athletes, five hours is better than three hours and eight hours is better than five hours, as you mentioned earlier. But when we have like an ISO time situation, athlete can only train 12 hours a week for whatever reason, right? right? They're limited by time. They're limited by injury or whatever. They want to be able to organize the intensity within that 12 hours in the smartest way possible and predominantly driven by your team out there. We've tried to contrive all of these different interval situations, eight ways from Sunday, 45 seconds on 15 seconds, easy one minute on one. And you're no, laughing because you know, <laughs> you're, talking, you're talking to sports sciences. Okay. Yeah, just thanks to me. 
Guys like me. Yeah, I, I, and I hear you. Um, it's a great question what you're asking, and it's a fundamental question that doesn't get asked in the right way because we tend to chop things up into interval training or this, but it's it's really about the, the mix. Uh, that's what you become a champion with is is not the one epic session or the one magic session, but the the hundreds of sessions in a year and how they're kind of how they're flowing together. Um, and so, well, 12 hours, that's a, that's a pretty nice amount of time to be able to work with. A lot of people would ask me that question if they only had five hours, yeah. you know, and then it gets even trickier, yeah. but anyway, you go, what I would say, I would say, look, what I don't want to do is fall into the trap of letting every session start to look the same because that is the most likely regression towards the mean you will see is that person who's, who does have 12 hours a week or 10 hours a week. That's, and let's say they train five to six times a week. They have one off day, you know, then, then that's starting to sound like two hours a day, every day. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and if I say, well, I've only got five or six then it's one hour a day, every day. And that's probably more, even more typical right. of, 35 year olds with three small kids and, and a job and all this stuff. Um, and so then that's the first thing I'm going to say is, well, what we're going to try to do is avoid falling into that black hole where every session becomes kind of a, you know, it ends up often being yellow zone. Right. Okay. If you've only got an hour, uh, if you've got two hours a day, that'll kind of, that'll tend to help keep you from being able to do that but you'll still have a tendency to be doing a lot of work at the same intensity. So that what I'm going to start to do is start to really say, all right, you know, I'm going to try to get you to do, if you're an ultra runner for sure, I'm going to want at least one of those sessions to be ultra long or longer. You know, I'm going to, and, and I'll pay that account by reducing the duration of another session. So instead of two times two, I'll say, give me a three hour plus a one hour. Okay. Cause then I'm going to start stretching you in the duration direction on at least one of those weekly sessions and maybe two. And then, then I might, uh, I might try to push you if you're really preparing for an ultra and you're on 12 hours a week and that's your time budget, then I might try to say, all right, uh, the next step in that progression, I'm going to try to get you to give me, uh, either Saturday or Sunday, two times two, you know, where now I'm going to, I'm going to squeeze together two workouts. They're not one four hour session yet, but that's two hours, lunch, talk mm. with the kids, do some requirement at home and then go two more hours. You with me? Yeah. So what you're saying is the first step is to take that volume and manipulate kind of the density at which it happens during the week. And in that, and in that way, what I just wrote down was three plus one is greater than two plus two. I think so. Yes. That's, that's, and that would be, I would say this for a cyclist. I would say this for a marathoner, not necessarily three hours of running for them, but you know what I'm saying? Right. 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 I'm going to try to stretch because Again, let's go back to our, our two fundamental tools in training is intensity and duration, right? And so we tend to, we tend to try to use the intensity hammer too, all, too much. 
so it's a very well-known tool. Well, we're comfortable with that tool and we tend to pound harder when things don't go well. Uh, but the other hammer is a subtle one, but it's, it's extension. So every, I, one of the things I often say to people is every time you train, you're asking yourself this question to what do I do? What am I doing today? Am I intensifying or am I extending? Does that make sense? Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm trying to, am I trying to, is the purpose of this workout to extend my durability or is it to intensify my aerobic capacity? Because, and, and ultimately both of those are, are valuable, but for the ultra runner, the, the real room for improvement will, will be on the extent on the extensive right side more than it will be on the intensification side yeah and we see so, a lot so i'm of, gonna try to create room for that we see a lot of coaches and athletes they try to peanut butter spread their volume out in this effort of consistency which that hammer gets the, or that drum i'll use that analogy since you're using the hammer analogy earlier that drum gets beat a lot right you need to be consistent you need to do a similar thing day after day and that's what produces champions and blah 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 but what i'm hearing from you and i i wholeheartedly agree with this i've written a lot about it is that one of the after you've maximized your volume or figured out what your maximum volume can be as a byproduct of logistics or training or whatever after that, finding out a way to distribute that volume in an efficacious and uneven and or lopsided fashion would be the next kind of step in your hierarchy of needs for a, for an ultra runner. Am I encapsulating that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 this is where I think can, you have to look at the scale of the of the consistency. Right. Yep. You know, consistency has scales. And so, yeah, I agree that consistency, like this year, because of Corona, I I personally traveled less than normal. I usually do. And I was more consistent in my professor training, you know, the, the, which means I'm not really training, but I did manage to train 10 hours a week this year. Um, Five, I hit 500 hours and that was because I was able to be more consistent, but even within that consistency, it ranged from seven to 14 hours a week, if that makes sense. So it depends on the scale you're looking at. And now within, let's say, if you're using a week as your, as your, as your um, micro cycle, I'm not necessarily sure that's always the best thing to do, but let's say it's seven day cycles. Yeah. You're going to be roughly consistent in how many hours a week, but you don't want to be consistent at the day to day scale. Right. Because that's where you get in trouble. Hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent. Consistent on board at the weekly that. scale, the monthly scale, but don't try to be consistent at the daily scale because then you will very likely move yourself into a stagnation kind of equation where you're just you're just putting in the numbers, but you're not actually extending or intensifying. To, to get real progress. Yeah. And you've brought up this really, uh, this really important concept related to this in a number of different talks that I've, I've seen you in. And by the way, you are everywhere. <laughs> I, I before, before I get on a uh, podcast, I don't know if that's people, a good thing. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I just, I have to, I have to mention it because it's coming up right now in my effort to do a little bit of research with any guests I go and I'd see where they've given 
you know, lectures and podcasts and things like that. I had too many to go through with you that were just within the last quarter, just within the last three months. So I don't know yeah. how you have time to do it all, but you are absolutely everywhere. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's well, like I said, this year has been pretty special just because of Corona and working at home and, and, and digital everything. So uh, the only thing I can say is the lead time or, or the, the time it takes to do, you know, usually if I were to give a, an hour lecture in, in Venice, Venice or uh, another, uh, wherever, uh, there's at least four days, right. three to four days, right. right? Travel, travel. But now it's four hours. Yeah. 100%. And 100%. I think that has resulted in more density. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know. <laughs> or there we go. Density. I love it. I digress. Okay. So one of the things that you have brought up is that a unit of time at a particular intensity is very different depending upon where that unit of time occurs within the exercise. So an hour running at an easy zone one pace is way different at the end of a three hour activity, a three hour run, or even a two hour run, as it is one hour at the very beginning or doing an hour onto itself. Ex yeah. Explain to the listeners why that is so much different and why we need to take that account in training. Well, and, and I guess that brings us back to this issue of steady state. Because there's this tendency to say, yeah, if I'm at low intensity, I'm in a so I'm in a steady state. My heart rate is flat, my lactate is flat. And well, Yes and no. It's true for about an hour, uh, you know, <laughs> but if you keep going, what happens? Let's let's. It's a war of attrition. Your body is slowly breaking down. You are becoming glycogen depleted. You may be becoming dehydrated, due, depending on how good you are at drinking. You your blood glucose is going down. Your muscles are there is literally physical damage to the eccentric loading. So there's a slow but sure. Uh, damage resulting and we can actually measure that with creatine kinase release and things like that. So there's a lot of, of, of attrition. There's some damage. There is fatigue. There's energy depletion. All of this is happening as you run, even at low intensity, even at a below the first lactate turn point. And as muscles fatigue as the muscles you're using to run at 12 kilometers an hour, whatever it might be, are fatiguing, then your brain to maintain that same pace, your brain has to recruit more muscle. It has to start tapping into additional so-called motor units. It's calling in reinforcements because the efficiency of the muscles that were, were being recruited that first hour, that efficiency is getting lower. They're becoming less efficient. They're fatiguing. So it costs more oxygen to do the same running speed. So there's a lot of things happening. And one of the things that we're, or <laughs> that whole set, that durability, you, you can put that all under a, this term durability. So one of the things that seems to happen with extended training over time is the athlete becomes more durable, meaning that this attrition happens more slowly. They're more efficient. They use glycogen more slowly. They just are able to, that second hour is not as much tougher as it is for the beginner who goes from hour one, hour two, right? 
I've, I'm in good grief. Boy, when I started cycling again, I, I saw it. I could just see it in the data, how, how much my heart rate drift decreased. It just stayed flatter longer. And I felt better at the end of the three-hour ride than I did when I first started to do a three-hour ride. So this is a durability issue. And this is one of the things it's, I guess, for the ultra runner, it is one of the key adaptations you're trying to achieve over time is push back, you know, keep pushing back that monkey, that, that attrition monster that's jumping on your back and just starting to make you feel like this is a really dumb idea. Why am I doing this? You know, because of the, the fatigue you feel in every part of your body. The, the attrition monster. I love that. I'm going to coin that and, and give you credit for it <laughs> in some way. I just used two seconds to make up that term because it's the best I could come up br- with. Well, it, 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 you know, in the 400 meter, we always used to call it, say the monkey was jumping on your right. back. But here it's, we'll call it the attrition fog or monster, or whatever, but it's, it's, it's maybe not quite as heavy, but it does sink in on you. Yeah. And part, part of the reason that we have to use these kind of like cle- this clever vocabulary is because it is not described very well in the research literature. We have very good and robust ways of describing power at four millimeters of, of, of lactate yeah. and lactate threshold and speed at VO2 max and things like that. But this durability concept, we keep making uh, references to things like cardiac drift and decoupling. But at the end of the day, we're just taking stuff that has been studied in other areas and extrapolating it to the ultra distance events. And I'm, I'm still not, I'm still not convinced that we have good ways of just of like completely describing a, what is going on. But the more important thing for the athletes that are listening to it is B what to do, what to do about it. Yeah. Well, I think you're completely right. You know, and I do think that still ultra running is fairly unexplored territory from a pure sports science physiology standpoint it's changing Um, though it's changing yeah it's slowly but and and of course it makes sense that it is difficult because good grief it's hard enough to get people to come into a lab to run for an hour (laughs) you know and so sports science you know we we struggle with this this uh dilemma of the laboratory need for very strict control versus trying to be do things that have external validity and application to, to out in the field. And, and good, you know, most of the lab stuff is, is applicable within about the hour duration range, but then it starts to fall apart, you know, because that, that threshold power or pace that you have, it is not what you have after three hours. Yep. You don't have that anymore. You you don't have that threshold power or pace. And and you certainly don't have it after eight hours. You know, so it's just a new ball game. And all those numbers you collected in the lab after a 15 minute warm up and an incremental protocol and you were done in an hour. Well, good grief. uh, Throw them out the window. They're they're just not (laughs) there 
12 hours into a 24 hour race or whatever. Well, know? even something as simple as what percentage of VO2 max can you sustain for a hundred mile race, which we know really well at the marathon distance at Olympic distance triathlon, Ironman triathlon, yeah. like yeah. we can, we can narrow that down pretty closely. The yeah. best estimates that we have at the hundred mile distance is anywhere between 30 and 70%, which is completely meaningless. Like it's like, we've got to get it better than that. That's another whole other. And I guess it also depends on how you may, how you define it because right. probably in those kind of races, there is, there are pauses, yep. you know, and so you're what's peak speed, what's yep. peak intensity. Cause then you're starting to talk about a duty cycle. Yep. Yep. Right. There's still, what's my there's work a nature. Yep. Huh? There's a still yeah, nature to the kind intensity. of a work rest nature. Yeah. Hundred percent. So okay. yeah, there's there's lots of stuff to deal with. Let's go back to our to our tools in the athletes' toolkit. So we've got the volume tool. You know, we need to maximize that. We've got the distribution of volume tool, and we know we need to concentrate the volume on certain sessions as opposed to peanut butter spreading it. We still have this. I think I feel like you're dodging the question, like our politicians do daily. We still have this <laughs> intensity question in terms of from an ultra running perspective. They can choose to do hour, an hour-long tempo interval. They can choose to do 45-second intervals. They can choose to do three-minute intervals and things like that. We know that we need to do different ones, right? Throughout the course of the year, I think everybody can kind of agree on that. We don't want to go out and right. do two days, you know, two days out of the week, one-hour tempo ad nauseum. That's, you know, nobody's doing that anymore. But we do know that, or we should try to figure out from, from any sport perspective, particularly in ultra running, which types of these combinations of workouts might be more or less valuable? Can we say anything to that based on the literature and reasonable extensions of the literature? Um, well, to be honest with you, the first answer I would have to you is guys, it doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Yeah. Uh, all, every time we start to go in and do any kind of real good, um, meta analysis on interval training, for example, it, then you end up with, it's a big soup. It, it, if you do the work and, and it, so within the interval spectrum, I tend to tell people if you're reasonably well-trained, then I'm going to recommend to you that your hard sessions where you're in that zone three area should be in that 30 to 40 minute total accumulated duration that you're going to collect minutes or collect sounds easy, accumulate minutes. And, and the way you do that, the research suggests that really it is not too important. It could be, you know, it could be two minute intervals. It could be four minute bouts, eight minute bouts, but you want to accumulate enough work at about somewhere around 90% of maximum heart rate. So it may start at 86, seven, and it may end up at 92 during the workout and you're going to accumulate minutes. And, and, and if I'm the coach, I'm not going to have any problem with my athlete with, we kind of mix it up, you know, like my daughter, her running, she's a runner, her bread and butter workout is four or five times eight minutes, four times eight, 32, five times eight, 40. And she, and, and nowadays we basically say, you don't get to go above 90%. I want you, you know, I don't want you in that fit, that highest intensity zone because it's too costly and the, and you don't get the bang for your buck is actually is not there. Yep. So 
we tend to, and we've seen this in elite performers in cross-country skiing and rowing and running, that there seems to be, if you're talking about sweet spot, uh, and I hate that term because it's so <laughs> misused and so misunderstood, but if you're talking about attractors or typical places that I'm going to say that two very reasonable um, intensity spots in a polarized model would be about 65%, 60-65% and about 90%. One of the ways that I've always viewed this is once you design a workout architecture such that it's going to eclipse that 90% mark, the goal of the workout should be to maximize the time that you're exposed to the intensity. And it's in a, in a certain way, not that the, not that, not that the difference between like 90 and 95% doesn't matter, but it's that the volume of time matters more than the absolute amount of intensity. And, and so, so anyway, I just go back to when I'm favoring, when I'm looking at how to design workouts and things like that, I'm typically trying to favor the ones as long as we can eclipse that 90%, that 90% mark, I'm typically tending to favor ones that can maximize the time at exposure. Yeah. And I think that's reasonable. And it's, it's also about, um, sustainability, which I know is a terrible, right. I mean, it's a well-worn expression, but when I talk sustainability for training, sustainability for training, I'm talking about the ability to come back day after day and do the well, training because then we're back to that consistency issue, yep. uh, consistency of being able to get up day after day and do the work. Well, if you do a heroic, epic interval session on, on Thursday, but it just kicks yeah. your butt, and you're not worth the crap for two days after that. Well, then what do we get? What was the net gain? Yeah. Whereas if I have you back off just a little on that interval session and say, leave one in the tank. Yeah. Or put, put a 90% governor on the engine. Well, now I'm getting consistency. I'm getting, I'm coming back to that consistency idea because you're able to get up the next day and do a, a run, not a hard run, but you're able to, you know, keep the motor turning. You're keeping the stimuli happening. That's one of the most typical errors I see in athletes that are really, you know, they double down on intensity and they say, man, if I can just gut out the, you know, the hardest interval session ever, that's going to give me progress. And often it does not. Yeah. And in terms of that exposure of time, maybe I should kind of clarify that the lens that I'm looking through that is typically on the order of several weeks not one session. So yeah. if I can accumulate okay. like 60 minutes of, you know, 60 minutes of time at above 90%, I would rather have an athlete be able to do 50 minutes or 45 minutes twice in a 10 day period versus one, one 60 minute session in a 10 day period, because the total amount of exposure for that period of time, that 10 day period of time is greater. And I feel that that drives, a greater adaptive response. Right. I, I, th I think that's, uh, that is kind of a, what should I call it? A self-organizational principle that starts to emerge from elite athletes who train a lot. They start to understand this. They, and over decades we've seen this. And I think this is why we see some of these intensity distribution patterns 
that we've that I've reported, you know, that it's not um, feed. It's based on long term feedback right. of trying to find continuity, and the athletes figure this stuff out over time. Right. Uh, and and so some of our absolute best performers in the world that we have data from, you know, all time great cross country skier, all time great rowers. This is this is very typical. Is that they're accumulating they're accumulating minutes. They're not in a five intensity zone model. They're doing very little training in that fifth zone. Right. That highest zone. It's just almost not happening, except in races. Right. Exactly. Well, and, and then look, it's there. It's yeah, still there. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, which is the crazy thing, right? Because we have this. We have this. Uh, we have this phrasing kind of stuck in our head of use it or lose it. That if you can't train at that intensity, you can't do that intensity in the race, right? And that, and we find that that is actually not the case, even at the highest of levels. Yeah, it's 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 r- ridiculous. It's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I feel comfortable saying that after looking at this data for 30 years you know it's it's not true right in fact it's it's a it's a dangerous presumption uh because it it does tend to push young athletes down the wrong path that they think that that if they don't do these these super hard sessions they don't get progress a good st- a story along those lines was i was told by a cyclist re- related to a, a former tour de france winner uh, cadell evans who's an australian he's an, an aussie uh, and cadell uh, he won the tour i guess he's about 42 now he's been retired a few some years but cadell he won the tour he's one of the greats I mean, and at a time when he was on the pro team, these young cyclists were, you know, they're at a camp, you know, and, and training camps are very common in the, in the, in cycling and they're going to do these intervals. And, but Evans is not doing the program. He's not doing these tough intervals like these young bucks are. And so they're like, what's up with this? You know why he's the best of the best and he's not doing the hard session the way we're doing it. And so one of the youngsters had the audacity and the nerve to actually ask him, you know, it was like, you know, you, Pete, you go, you ask him, you ask him. And so eventually somebody <laughs> said, okay, I'll ask him. And so Cadell, you know, you're, you're an all-time champion, but you're not doing these intervals like we are. Why not? And he says, he says, well, you know, mate, <laughs> uh, it's a long season. And, I've got to be ready in July. We're in January. And, and so I'm, I'm pacing myself, you know? And so he was just, he was at a point in his career where he understood the long-term process. Yeah. And I think that is, and he wasn't trying to, you know, he wasn't turning every, uh, every problem into something he was going to hammer with intensity. Right. And we see that with a lot, a lot of athletes that have something to prove, right? that they, they tend to use these kind of more sexy approaches to training where they're using that intensity hammer a tremendous amount. Um, let, let, let's get into the weird sport of ultra running a lot now, because we know it's a different, we know that the, 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 that the performances, it's just a different proposition than we see even in 
even in stage race cycling, which tends to be who can make it over the first climb and then who can make it over the second climb and who can make it over the third climb and then who's at the top of the tourmalet or whatever. There's a totally different physiological proposition in those races versus this durability, which tends to be very low intensity and how long can you sustain not having that intensity drop off. Um, what types of outside of trying to build a tremendous amount of volume, what can ultra runners look towards in order to be able to extend this concept of durability that there, that is oh so important in the sport? Well, let's think about it. Where, where does the attrition, where does the fatigue and the damage happen? One is at the muscular level where you just, you, you get literally muscular damage. Uh, and so, an example of that is I have a colleague that was working down in uh, Qatar at the Aspire Academy, and he he was doing some ultra stuff. But at, in in Qatar, there's it's just flat as can right, be, right. and so he does a, an ultra, and he doesn't do very well for his standards. And he and he says he realizes I need more eccentric loading. I right. need more downhill running. You know where am I going to get that? Because there's no hills. And so he starts running up and down the stairs and high rises. And just that he drops 30 minutes off his time. The next, the next race, you know, just, and, he, and he's able to play tennis the next day with his kid after an ultra, just by bringing in the, the, the negative, you know, the yep. downhill running, because it just is clearly a, adaptive in a way that is extending. It's making him less susceptible to the, damage and the attrition. So we know, obviously, I think strength training, I think pretty, you know, some significant, not only climbs, but downhills probably have uh, an adaptive effect that make the legs more tolerant of and more resistant to the the damage that's going to occur as the the race wears on during an ultra run. Uh, Obviously, and, and I, I was at a presentation or a conference back in 15, and I remember uh, Mia, uh, he's one of the guys that does good research on ultra athletes, and he was discussing this, that so far, you know, we haven't maybe seen the best East African runners try ultra, but so far it looks like there's at least a little bit of a difference in the morphology Right. of the best ultra runners that they have a little bit more quadriceps muscle mass. Uh, they're not just necessarily thinner is better. And maybe that's to help spread the load of all, you know, and he was looking at these athletes that do a lot of vertical meters, you know, up and down, but something about it. it there is research showing that strength training helps eccentric loading helps, you know, so I would have that part of it. You know, I want to keep, you know, just making that muscle as resilient as possible to the repetitious loading. And cause that's, what's gradually going to beat down that athlete and, and their stride shortens and that for one reason, just because the muscle of the muscle damage during the, during the, during the run. And then, then the other huge issue of, I think, is fueling. Uh, it's, it's gastrointestinal training. Uh, and that's not, my, that's not my research world, but you have to be able to get in yeah. 
food. You have to tolerate a fairly high consumption of calories of, of carbohydrates for hours. You have to tolerate your, your stomach has to tolerate, you know, it's having to do a lot of work, which normally doesn't happen during endurance exercise. We normally, what happens normally we're exercising and the brain basically shuts down blood flow to the so-called splachnic region, which is just the intestines so that it can be rechanneled to the muscle. The body makes decisions about blood flow distribution you know, short-term gain versus long-term needs, less kidney blood flow, less, less blood flow to the intestines and so forth. And that works if you're running for an hour, yeah. right? But if you run for six or nine or 12, uh-oh, wait a minute, I got I to gotta have some of both. I've got to have a functioning gastrointestinal system. This is where you start to see some athletes just handle it better than others, but it's trainable. Right. Uh, eating, learning how to eat, what to eat, what your eating cycle, your drinking cycle is. I think that if I were going to go into ultra distance, that is definitely one of the areas where I would become an expert, <laughs> at least on myself. Yeah. You know, I would become a, you know, and I think it is individual to a certain extent of what do I tolerate and, and how can I move a lot of carbohydrate through my body so that I keep uh, fueling uh, as long as possible, because yeah, you're in fat burning modus. I get it, but you still need some carbs. You know, you still need some, your blood glucose can't fall too low. Uh, and you need to be hydrated. You need to stay hydrated. And we know that the, the nutritional components absolutely affect this durability concept, even at shorter durations, like the three hour duration, four hour oh, duration yeah. earlier, you want to go through some of the things that you've done personally, and then also that you've kind of like crowdsourced through Twitter to demonstrate that? Well, yeah, uh, definitely one of the biggest problems, the biggest things that we see with athletes is they don't, they, they dehydrate. Uh, they don't ventilate well. If you're stuck indoors in cycling because of COVID and that, there's been a lot of indoor cycling and that. If you're rowers, they tend to sit on rowing machines and and rowers often are pretty big bodies and they produce a lot of heat. They have trouble getting rid of heat. So they sweat like crazy. You can imagine an Oxford rowing club where there's 15, 95 kilo chunks, a human <laughs> and they're, and they're, and they're sweating like crazy. Well, you can just imagine what a bad environment that is for, uh, you know, keeping, keeping ventilated. So, we've done some indoor studies where like four hour rides and versus two, two versus two times two. And, and clearly uh, keeping the drinking schedule makes a difference. If you don't drink heart rate drifts up, if you don't drink, you are contributing to the collapse of your system. And by collapse, I mean that you're slowly deteriorating uh, functionally because when you don't drink, you ultimately decrease blood volume. So your heart's having to go at a higher heart rate to do the same cardiac work. You're just, you're just debilitating the body's ability to sustain itself through because of dehydration. So hydration matters. Uh, it helps prevent the decoupling or it reduces the rate of decoupling, that heart rate drift. And let me tell you, you, people say, well, who cares if my heart rate's going up? It doesn't matter. Well, yes, it does, because it is a speedometer. 
in, in almost every case, when we look at heart rate, if your heart rate's high, you're stressed, right? If, if I'm sitting right here and I'm nervous and my heart rate's 110, then I'm not in as good a place as I would be if it was 70. And it's the same situation if you're out running and your heart rate has drifted up 15, 20 beats. It's not for nothing that has happened. It's because your body is more stressed to achieve the same workload. So that decoupling does tell us something. And one of the things that helps reduce the decoupling is just uh, good hydration and good uh, intake of, you know, it, keeping the calories in as well. So partly it's the fluid, but partly some caloric intake as well. Well, and you've even uh, measured your heart rate during your TED talk. I remember going through that. So you're definitely <laughs> yeah. stressed, definitely stressed there, huh? <laughs> were you at threshold? I think that's what everybody was, wants to was, know is what lactate term point were you at at your highest point during that uh, TED talk? I don't know if I had much lactate, but I sure as hell had a lot of cortisol pumping through my veins. <laughs> so. Okay, let's get into what you're studying in the lab because uh, we, we talked about this a little bit. It's either going to be on air or off air, depending upon where I decide to cut in. But you, you're doing some stuff at university that might be important for ultra runners. Why don't you describe what that looks like right now? Well, we've talked about the fact that the, the research literature is kind of overly weighted towards studies on interval training, right? High intensity. What's the magic? What's the, the flavor of the month right. on your interval prescription? And I've contributed to it a little bit. I've done, I've published some interval studies, so I'm, I'm guilty as well. But what, given that I've also published quite a bit of work on intensity distribution, and I've, and I've said repeatedly that the bread and butter for endurance athletes is that, you know, that low intensity, those low, long sessions. Well, then we start getting into the question, yeah, how, how low is too low? How long is too long? We start asking questions about the prescription of those low intensity endurance sessions, Right. And so that's what we're, I'm trying to pursue now through some research is to say, okay, you know, where, how does intensity, how do intensity and duration interact in that low intensity range? And, and, and I do believe that that's the reason that when people say, yeah, Professor Siler, uh, what intensity should I be at for the low intensity sessions? Right. And then I, my answer is always, well, sir, it depends are you going to be there for an hour, two hours, or four hours, right? Because 50% of VO2 max for one hour is probably not a sufficient stimuli, but 50% of VO2 max for five hours may be a heck of a stimuli, right? 70% of VO2 max is probably pretty darn hard for three hours, but if you're only going out an hour, then that may be appropriate. It's still, if it's still below threshold. So I think there's, that's why you, it's, you can't give a, a blank and a blanket answer on this, I, this question of what's the good, what's a good prescription in the low intensity range. And particularly, I do think that there are these issues of, of saddle time or time on your feet that you need to consider. It's not just about developing mitochondria. It's also about adapting the muscles, the joints, the tendons to 
the repeated mechanical loads. So that's part of the, a big part of the training process for the ultra runner. And that's one of the reasons why I'm going to want them. If I'm the coach, I'm going to want to do those four hour slogs, you know, four hour sessions where, where you may have some walking involved on the hills or whatever. I'm going to still want them to do that because that's good preparation for what their race. I've always thought that this, this, how easy is too easy question is lazy on two fronts. First is the obvious one, right? You're trying to get to like the minimum amount of exertion that you can get away with. Yeah. But the, the second way, the second way that it's that the question is lazy is because whenever you're talking about exercise prescription, you have to have both the volume and intensity components defined in order to ascertain the answer. So to your point of, yeah, Sometimes an exposure of 50% at VO2 max is not worth it for an hour, but it might be worth it for four or five or six hours. Absolutely. So yeah. we, we need to remember that there are both, there are both, there are two sides to that coin in terms of what is best. There's the intensity side, but there's also how much time you're actually exposed to that. The intensity is absolutely important. Well, or I would even go farther and I'd say any discussion of intensity is absolutely meaningless without a discussion of duration yeah. because you know intensity is 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 one dimensional and it only takes on meaning physiologically when you start multiplying it times a duration 100%. that's why we have so-called pace or power duration curves 100% 100% okay so this is the era of crowdsourcing a lot of I was going to use the word research but I think that might actually be the right word which you've done a really cool job with I mean, I, I've really appreciated what you've been able to do on Twitter, just in terms of galvanizing the endurance community to 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 find information about different training protocols, particularly indoors. What's next on that front for you? Like, what what have you got oh, yeah. kind of like cooking in the back of your brain that we can <laughs> bring out in this podcast and help you plug? Oh well it is, there's a delicate balance. And I think we're, this is challenging academia and challenging research because of ethical issues, because of, uh, you know, normally for those who are not in my world, if, if we're going to design some laboratory study where we're going to have people come in, uh, there's always these, thankfully, since the end of World War II, there have been things called institutional review boards, which, assess the degree to which we are any researcher is exposing other humans to unnecessary risk uh risk of injury risk of undue pain all of these things so every study on humans has to be evaluated by some review board and and this is part of our job you know to make sure we've dotted the i's and crossed the t's and we've got all of our security issues in place, you know, whether it's COVID-19 related now and, and risk of infection, blood, all these different things, you know, every, these studies, whether it's master's study or PhD program, we all, all of them have to be done that way. Well, now with crowdsourcing, we've added some, some, pro, some challenges because if I recruit 50 people and, and they're between age 20 and let's say 50, then I'm having to, you know, I, they're all over the world 
And what happens if one of them gets sick or has a heart attack while they're doing the workout that was actually going to be Steven's data? Am I at fault? Mm -hmm. Is my institution at fault? So I'm in kind of this, you know, I have done some of this stuff and, and I am in these discussions because we're all facing this. We all see, or we all, a lot of sports scientists are seeing tremendous possibilities in crowdsourced research because we can do things that are practical. We can do things that have direct relevance to training practice. We can increase the sample size so that we get the variation. We start to be able to say things about that better than we can do with a set with a sample of 10 people in a lab. Now I can have, you know, a hundred people that do something for me via Twitter but we've got to just make sure that we find the right balance between the the value and the the quickness and the and the directness, you know, the direct translation to practice through crowdsourcing, and then make sure that we don't get anybody hurt. That that I as a as a scholar don't um, get move too fast. <laughs> and I've had a tendency to do that. You know, I, I've, I've just, you know, cause I'm, you're enthusiastic you know, I, about it. Yeah. And I, and I want to know the answer and I want you guys to, I want to be able to help tell people the answer. So, uh, so that's my, what I would share with people that are listening is just that, yeah, I think crowdsource research is a tool. I ask questions, but, but, but I've kind of done a lot of this recently without, expecting to publish some of those things because if I want to publish it, then I have to go that low, that slow route through the institutional review board in Norway. I may have to even go through a national review board. And so then I'm probably not, you know, I'm going to slow down. I'm not going to do certain kinds of studies as crowdsourced just because right now the institutional review boards don't know what to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, but it's still a good tool. The way that I've kind of looked at it, 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 to your point of having a good tool, it's an, it's an enhanced way of evaluating anecdote, right? We have all of these athletes that are out there training in the field. If we can take that huge mass of athletes and give it some, some shape it a little bit and give it some direction we can glean information from it. It might not be as precise as a research study, might not be as well controlled as formal research and things like that, but we can still, at the end of the day, we can still glean information of it. Just like we glean information, we have to carefully glean information from anecdote and from story and things like that. I've always viewed kind of what has transpired recently predominantly over Twitter, and you've been a big, a, a really influential influential driver of this, as just another way that we can glean information from athletes that are actually doing things in the field. And to your point, it's really practical because it's what yeah. they're actually doing. It's not an over-contrived setting. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I, I'm going to use it. And I would even argue that there are different levels. Yeah. One level is just purely passive where something like um, Strava or the concept to rowing agrometer, all the, all the world rankings, there's just, just publicly accessible databases. And that's just, 
you the person has basically said this is free game because i put my data out there well that's not too problematic at all even for the institutional review boards and then the next level up that i've gone to has been to do things like questionnaires i can quicken i can get a thousand responses on a questionnaire in three days two days on twitter that gives me some interesting perspective on how people think how people use what's what's typical practice and that's that's low risk that's not hurting anybody that's you know and then we move into that next level which is to have people if i say to them like i did last uh, march april i say hey you're stuck inside anyway you're on the bike you know <laughs> uh why don't we agree on a little bit of of protocol here you're going to do a four-hour ride you know and, and so we did that kind of study where i just had them do something they were going to do anyway but we can we kind of controlled the parameters used google forms used some bespoke software we created and it worked it worked great but it wasn't a training intervention it was just saying what are the responses how dehydrated are you getting how much is your heart rate drifting and things like that and that's that gives some answers that are useful in training. But then the the next level that we're starting to see and that I have a couple of PhD people that I'm interacting with in different countries that they are going full blown. They are organizing intervention studies, training interventions. And there one is using uh, Trainer Road. They have a cooperation with Trainer Road, a, 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 an application there that is helping them to recruit athletes into this this randomized trial where they're going to be training in different, you know, using different training methodologies. So that is, you know, and, and we're talking, you know, the goal there is maybe 200, 300 subjects. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, that's big to do a training state. Cause that's never been done right. in, in uh, you know, we've never had that many well-trained people doing a training intervention in a lab based studies. You just can't do it. Uh, I've come pretty, you know, the best I've managed is do a multi-center trial with three different locations. And we had about 70 yeah. and that was, that was hard. rock and roll. Yeah. That was big. Yeah. And that was hard. Yeah. But, but this, this approach with digital data and all that, I do think it's part of the future toolbox and you're going to see publications that are going to use this and the Corona, this pandemic has the only thing it's done is accelerate that development. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, you want to do it on ultra runners. We're pretty game for torturing ourselves. So if you want to come <laughs> up with some sort of protocol, throw it out there. You'll have a thousand responses. I guarantee you, I'll be more than willing to help you out with oh, that. No, actually, that uh, you better be careful there because that's an interesting idea. <laughs> I will. I, I'm serious. I have, I have the software to play with that issue. So uh, I've been, I work with, uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to talk off camera or off, off mic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I'd love to do that. I always put my money where my mouth is trying to support research and get people involved in it because there is, there, 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 it, there's a gap uh, when we go up to the ultra distances. In fact, I had to look this up just the other, uh, the other day when I first started working with ultra runners that, ye that year, there were a total of six papers that were published in that domain. Six. That's nothing. <laughs> so well, and, it's, and it's come I, a long I've way. Looked a, I've looked a little bit at the data. You have a guy named Beat Knechtel mm -hmm. uh, from Switzerland. Yep. Or Beat or Beat. Yep. I'm not sure how he pronounces his own first name. He's done a tremendous amount of stuff, but very much of it is based on big data, yep. uh, looking at databases, looking at 
correlations between different test results and performance. And you can glean some information from that. For example, you, you can find out that, well, it helps to have a, a low BMI, meaning you, you're lean and, and don't weigh very much. That's one of the best predictors of success, but that doesn't help us very far. So to move beyond just the kind of the superficial characteristic stuff and into some details about the training process, I do think it's going to take some kind of, it'll probably take a crowdsourced approach because yeah. you just, you can't do interesting, you can't do four hour runs in a lab. So, but if I can, if I can cooperate with someone like your athletes and we can say, all right, let's agree on that over the next three or four or two months, you're going to run three different long runs, you know, that last two, four and six hours. And we're going to look at in that duration range, how is intensity changing? Now that would be, an interesting question, you know, and that's just the first thing I think of is just moving out to that range that is more relevant for your athletes than for typical, uh, 10k runners. You right? get people that participate in that hundred percent cause we're doing it anyway. And we want to know the, and we want to know the information. I have no doubt about that. Maybe between the time that we record this and the time this comes out, we can brainstorm a little bit and I can put it in the show notes or in the outro. Uh, but if yeah. not, people will just have to hound us once the podcast comes out about but, but the, what are we going to do? And then we get into, this is, the, this is where I get ahead of myself because my brain is like going fast. But then immediately the other, the, the other part of my brain, which is tied to an academic institution says, well, this is good enough. This should be published, which means I need to go through IRB. I need to go through the, in, the, the review board process so that all my T's, I's and T's are crossing. So that, so I've got this, like there's fast Steven and logical slow Steven and they're competing with each other all the time. I'm so glad we got to, pe- we got to peer into your any inner psyche because yeah, my inner, inner schizophrenia. <laughs> well, I could tell you, I could tell you this, Stephen, as somebody who's followed your work for over, well over a decade, I don't even want to go back that far because that'll date both of us. <laughs> well, well, well over a decade and used a tremendous amount of it in practice. I'm very appreciative of it. I know we kind of made fun of all the different contrived iterations of what that research has actually looked like, but it's appreciative because we, we, I can, I can prescribe something and have a reasonable degree of certainty of what the outcome or what the physiological outcomes of it is going to be. And it's because of all of that nuance. And yeah, it might not be all that different between this prescription and that prescription, but at least I know it's made a big impact on me. And I can tell you across our entire coaching group, we have 50 coaches across our coaching group. That type of research has made a big impact across the board, running, ultra running, triathlon, cycling, you name it in the endurance disciplines. It goes without stage. And I'm just thrilled to to get into your inner psyche just a little bit at the very end of this podcast. <laughs> uh, so I'm very appreciative of it. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's uh, It makes it meaningful to do the work when I know people are actually able to use it. Yeah, and it is. Absolutely. All right, Steve, we're going to let you go. Uh, any final words that you have or any uh, places that we can direct athletes to find uh, a little bit more about what you do? Well, you know, I, like you said, I'm kind of all over the place just because uh, there has been some demand, but I do have this Twitter account, which is just my name. And then I have, uh, I actually have a YouTube 
channel, which is kind of scary to say. Uh, it's awesome, by the way. At, it's awesome. Oh, well, <laughs> my son would disagree. He would say, "Well, you are such a <laughs> you're such a meaningless uh, YouTuber, Dad. You know, because you don't even have anywhere close to a million followers." You know, so, so it's information. Yeah, ha- it's information heavy. Let's put it that way. It's very yeah, yeah, yeah. So for my little niche, I think maybe there are some people that could benefit. So, 100%. so yeah, I try to put out some stuff on training there on YouTube, and then and then there's a continuous dialogue going on on uh, Twitter. Yep. So. You're an awesome Twitter follow. I really, like I said, I really appreciate your work. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. And we will sync up offline and try to come up with some sort of crowdsource project one way or another. That'd be great. Awesome. All right. And there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Steve for coming on the podcast today. As I mentioned from the onset, you've not only had a tremendous impact on me, but also the endurance community as a whole. We are all very appreciative for the knowledge base that you have provided to both coaches and athletes. And I promise everybody we're going to get something crowdsourced on Twitter in terms of getting some research out there for the ultra endurance community. So go and give Steve a follow on Twitter. His handle is in the show notes. He's always a good follow for a ton of knowledge across the entire endurance spectrum. Thank you to all the listeners. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. That is it for today. We will see you out on the trails.